The following night, the Lord stood by Paul and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. I want the reality of this verse spoken to Paul by the Lord Jesus in his presence to explode in your heart today. Not just the doctrines that are here, that are present here. We're going to talk about those. But the reality that's that's here contained. The, The words spoken to Jesus. Take courage. Take courage. This verse is good news for every genuine follower of Jesus. But it's particularly good news for every follower of Jesus who is well aware of their insufficiency. Okay? It's particularly good news for the fearful and the anxious and the suffering and the weak and the needy. I mean, who else needs to hear from Jesus, take courage, except those who need courage? Right? Those who are pretty full of themselves and self-sufficient, this word makes almost no sense to them. Jesus, in what is the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapters 5 to 7, uh, the, the first 11 or 12 verses are what, what's called the Beatitudes. It's the, the qualities that, that followers of Christ have present in their lives. And the first Beatitude, perhaps the most important one, the one where everything starts is where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You and I really are blessed when we feel our need for Christ. Not just the day we get saved, but every day thereafter. When we have this keen awareness that we need Jesus, right? Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's good counsel for us to be reminded of day after day after day. Apart from me, you can do nothing. When we really feel desperate for Jesus, that's when we are blessed. And I got to tell you, I mean, it's, it's hard when we have so much at our fingertips to feel needy for almost anything. And yet to be poor in spirit, Jesus said, is to be blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is something we're not usually looking for, is it? The sense of neediness, the sense of of being poor in spirit. Yet God has a way of bringing us to that place. And by his grace, he often does. Paul, in this text, is being held in custody. He's basically in in a jail cell. He's in the barracks with Roman soldiers or brought there by Roman soldiers. And Jesus comes to him and speaks these words. And we have to ask ourselves, is anything too hard for Jesus? I mean, clearly, I I think we all would agree, I hope we all would agree, Jesus could have gotten Paul out of the barracks, right? He could have done it in a moment. There's nothing too difficult for the Lord. I mean, is there any prison door he can't open that he doesn't have a key for? Is there any problem he can't fix? Is there any circumstance right now that he can't change in an instant? God has the means of getting you and I out of every problem and sparing us every hardship. 
But he often doesn't, does he? And this is the case with Paul. This, perhaps, I mean, it's conjecture. It's, I, it's not like the text says this, but I, I, I think from the context, we could see this, this is probably a dark night for Paul. This was a challenging night for Paul. Um, maybe one of the darkest nights in his life. For a long time, Paul wanted to go to Jerusalem. Remember, we, we, we saw like in chapter 20 and 21, he's like, he, he was zealous. He's like, I'm on my way to Jerusalem. I must get to Jerusalem. He wanted to go to Jerusalem. And not just to hang out, but he, he wanted to have a fruitful ministry in Jerusalem among his people, the Jews. But when he came to Jerusalem, he found a church that was compromised. It's full of legalistic believers, right? If you remember back in chapter 21, when James says there's lots of Jews who have believed, and then he has this, and they are really zealous for the law. And they're suspicious about you, Paul. That's not a good thing, right? So it was a a church that had been somewhat compromised. They viewed Paul suspiciously because of his connection with the Gentiles. And then when Paul proclaimed Christ to the Jews, it didn't go well, right? It went up in smoke. When Paul stood before the Jewish leaders, that testimony went up in smoke. We just saw that last week and early and in this text here in the first part of it. And the Jewish people didn't want Paul just to ride off into the night quietly. They were out for blood. They wanted to kill him. Now, I don't know if this happens to you often. It hasn't happened to me too often. But have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you really thought someone wanted to do violence to you physically? I mean, it's happened to me a few times. Okay, I'm, I'm not a brawler. I never have been. I can count the fist fights I've gotten into on one finger. And it's with, it was with my brother. And I think I was 10. And he was older and bigger than me, so it didn't go well for me. Okay, but if you've ever been in a situation where you think, I think this person wants to hurt me. And if no one else was around, I think they would. It's not a fun feeling to have to be, a situation to be in, is it? This was Paul's regular experience. I mean, it says the, the, the Romans had to, had to take him because the, the, the tribune thought they were going to tear Paul apart. I don't know what that looked like, but it was pretty rowdy. Grabbing his arms, maybe grabbing his hair. I mean, just spitting on him, punching him as they're taking Paul away. This is Paul's regular experience. So here Paul is, dejected, perhaps, certainly rejected, discouraged, perhaps afraid for his life. Certainly feeling as though his trip to Jerusalem was less than stellar. And Jesus comes to him. Jesus could have released him from prison. We've seen prison breaks in the book of Acts. It's no problem for God. It's as easy as walking through this door to get someone out of the most secure prison in the world for God. But he didn't. So while in prison... The Lord comes to Paul and deeply encourages him. And I think, I think we need to hear this today. Because we all know that God does not whisk us away from every problem we go through, every trial we face. We just know that. So he must have something else in mind at times. So he comes to Paul. And he greets Paul with one word. 
Actually, in the English translations, it's two words, or sometimes more, if, if the translators get a little carried away. But in the Greek, it's one word. It's translated in the ESV, take courage. I think other translations say take heart. The New King James gets a little, goes a little further. It says be of good cheer. I like take courage. Only Christ uses this word. It's not a word used very often in the New Testament. Five times. And it's spoken by Jesus every time. And every time he speaks it, it's meant to give great comfort to those who receive it. Okay? So, for instance, I'll just go through them. It won't take long to go through them. The bedridden paralytic in Matthew 9. His friends were carried him on a bed, brought him to Jesus, lowered him down through the roof. And Jesus, it says, sees their faith. And he says, take heart or take courage. Your sins are forgiven. And if, every, if you believe in Christ, he has spoken that over you. Your sins are forgiven. Take courage. The woman who had the issue of blood that struggled for 12 years, we're told, in, later in Matthew 9. And she heard about Jesus and how he's this miracle worker and he heals people. And if I just can get close enough to touch the hem of his garment, I think I could be healed. Actually, she says, I know I would be. And so she does. She gets close. She touches the hem of his garment. She's instantly healed. Anyways, Jesus, long story short, turns to her and says, Take heart, daughter, or take courage, daughter. Your faith has made you well. To his storm-tossed and scared disciples who were rowing a boat across the Sea of Galilee and they were going against the waves and the wind. This would be a struggle. And they were more freaked out when they saw Jesus walking on water, right? And you would be too and I, we would be. Whoa. Jesus comes to them and says, take courage. Do not be afraid. It is I. And the night of his crucifixion, Jesus, the last words as he sat around the table with his disciples, John 16, the last words of what we call the Last Supper discourse, Jesus says, take courage. I have overcome the world. This is Christ's unique word to his storm-tossed, needy, weak, weary, suffering, fearful, anxious servants. And I don't know about you, and I can put on a brave face, but I, I need courage to really live for Christ. If I'm just going to go along with the world, if we're just going to kind of just go with the current of society and the world, that doesn't take a bit of courage and hardly any inconvenience. One Sunday, one, one morning a week, show up to church. But if you're going to be a Christian that follows Christ, you're going to need courage. We're going to need courage. Jesus speaks this word to thrust these servants who are weary and suffering and tired and fearful at times and needy and weak. He speaks it to thrust them forward in obedient, persevering, spirit-empowered, faith-filled, and courageous service for his glory. This is the word he speaks today. You and I will need courage. We need courage to live for Christ. 
And here's the amazing thing. He is so willing to give it. He's so willing to give it. So generous and open-handed right now to give courage to his people. So, this text, I think, shows us four reasons for every Christian to courageously live for Jesus all the way to the end. Not, not for a week, not for a year, not until you hit retirement age and then you can check out for the rest of your life. Four reasons for every Christian to live courageously for Christ to the end. Number one, take courage, Christian, because the Lord is with you always. It says this, that the Lord came and stood by Paul. Isn't that amazing? Paul was in this prison. The Lord came and stood by him. This was not a vision or a dream. It doesn't say the Lord appeared to Paul. Jesus didn't send an angel on an errand. Jesus himself went. It says the Lord stood by him. The Lord came to Paul to comfort him and give him the encouragement of his immediate presence. And therefore, we see that in the midst of the fiery trial, the Lord came to Paul and stood by him stood right by him, right next to him. At the end of his life, Paul says almost the same thing. At the end of his life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, these are the final words that we have recorded that Paul's written in, in sacred scripture. And Paul says, in my first hearing, presumably before Caesar, no one came to stand by me. But the Lord stood by me. And strengthen me. This is like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were not kept from going through the fire, but rather the Lord was with them in it. Isn't that what we need? Listen, we pray and we should pray that God rescues us from difficulties and challenges. But sometimes we can be so fixated on the rescue that we lose sight of the fact that he is with us now, right this very second, that he is with us and he wants to comfort and encourage us and give us that strength and courage that we need when we're walking through the valley of deep darkness. And you may may think, man, things are going pretty good for me right now. And I don't say this like doom and gloom at all. Just I look at the Bible and this is the conclusion I come to. You just wait. I mean, there's going to be trials. There will be. The psalmist says this, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Do you know this? God is a very present help in your time of trouble. In the time of trouble. When you're threatened with fear and anxiety, do you know that the Lord is near you? When you're threatened with uncertainty about the future, when you're threatened with some kind of trial, whether it be physical or emotional or financial or whatever it may be, do you know the nearness of the Lord with you? I love Isaiah 41.10. 
It's been said that, that, the, that the, the command is spoken over and over again in the Bible, 300 and some odd times. I heard someone say 365. I don't know if that's true or not, like one for every day of the, of the year, but maybe it is. Fear not. And often, what comes after that is fear not, because I'm with you, for I'm with you. Here's what Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will, up, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Jesus has promised to his disciples, past, present, and future. We call it part of the Great Commission. Matthew 28.20 20 says, Go make disciples, baptize, teach them to obey. And he says this, and, and, and know I'm with you always to the very end of the age. I love the word always in there. He's not just saying I'm with you to the end, but I'm with you always to the end. Like now and 10 minutes from now and any moment you are in is part of that always. He's with us. This is why we can have courage. You might say, yeah, but Jesus is in heaven now. How can he be with me? And of course, this, this brings in our understanding of the Trinity and the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit. And what Jesus said to his disciples the night of his betrayal when he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm going to come to you. I will come to you. I'm going to give you another helper, the Spirit of truth who will be with you forever. When he says another helper, what he means is another, the same kind that I have been to you, right? Another helper, just like Jesus. Of course, we know this because the, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And so, how practically do we experience this? Now, this is more than just a propositional truth. It is that. I mean, you can take to the bank that Christ is with you, whether you feel it or not. But it's meant to be more than just an objective truth. It's not meant to be less than that, but it's meant to be more than that. So how do we experience this? How can this be part of our experience now and tomorrow when we face challenges and we need courage to know that the Lord is with us? Well, we clearly know how to give attention to our problems, don't we? We are champions at giving attention. Well, hopefully we're growing up out of that, but, but we are, we're all born champions giving attention to our problems. A baby, the only person they think about is themselves and their problem. Well, they think about mom and what mom can do for me, but right, it's like they think about themselves and their problems. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, I'm uncomfortable because of this mess in my, you know, you know what I mean. All right. So we are born champions, micromanaging and focusing and looking at our problems, analyzing them, meditating on them. Well, what if we turned our attention to the Lord Jesus and to his promises and specifically to his promises in the word? Specifically to the promises that he gives us. And not just the promises of future things, but the promises of what he has done for us. 
promise of what he is doing for us right now. One, one thing I, I love to meditate on, and I need to do it more, quite frankly, is that Jesus, Hebrews 7 says, always lives to make intercession for us. That Jesus, for his people, is always praying for them. Isn't that amazing? I mean, I love when people tell me I'm praying for you or I've been praying for you. I love that. But there's nothing better than when we hear and understand Jesus is praying for me and he always lives to do that, to keep me, to keep me safe, not from all harm, but to keep me safe eternally. He's praying for me. It's amazing. If we, by God's grace, could turn away from being fixated and analyzing and meditating and fussing over our trials, though they are real and could have our attention turned to the Lord and give him our focus and our attention and meditate on his promises and what he says, then I think the sense of the nearness of Christ would become more a reality and not just an idea. Listen to how the Lord encouraged Jeremiah. He says to Jeremiah, you're going to face, Jeremiah, you're going to face all kinds of opposition. And uh, how would you like that to be, you know, part of your job description? I mean, part of your, your life. You're, just, you're going to face all kinds of opposition. But he says, he goes on to say this. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail. For I am with you, declares the Lord. It's like God says, there's going to be problems. They're going to oppose you. They're going to be against you. But they will not win because I'm with you. There's nothing sweeter than the presence of Jesus. Nothing sweeter than knowing his nearness. And this is the inheritance of every blood-bought Christian. Jesus suffered a horrendous death. Physically, he was rejected and and humiliated. And he suffered the horrendous reality of God's almighty wrath because of our sins. And he did this so that our sins could be removed, so that every barrier could be removed from us knowing God and fellowshipping with God. And this is experienced through the presence of the Holy Spirit who dwells in the heart of every Christian. Again, this is meant to give us great courage. So, Christian, take courage. The Lord is really with you and near you and will be always to the end of the age. Bank on it. Number two, Take courage, Christian. The Lord sees you and knows your circumstances. Why was Paul to take courage? Because the Lord saw Paul and knew exactly what he was going through. He knew exactly what he was going through. The Lord had not lost sight of Paul even though he was in this common jail. And Jesus did not come to Paul in some nebulous way either. It's interesting. It says that Paul was in the barracks, right? And the Lord came to him, where? In the barracks. 
He didn't whisk Paul away to some remote site, maybe on the beach somewhere, and talk to Paul there. No, he came to Paul in the barracks. Get the idea that Jesus could have, he could have taken a whiff of the musty stink in that barrack, in those barracks. He was there with him. And the Lord stood beside him. He saw where Paul was. And he knew all that Paul had gone through. He knew all that Paul had suffered. And he sees you. And he knows the peculiar trials you face. What you suffer. What you have endured. And what you fear. If you've gone through the ringer and suffered tremendously through unexpected trials, or at the hands of another person, vicious things, the Lord wants you to know, I see you, and I know all about it, and I've got you, and none of what you have suffered will go to waste, none of it. And again, So often, we just are thinking, get me out of this situation that we miss this reality that God wants us to know, that he knows us in our difficulty, in our trials, and our sufferings. I love this psalm. I just read it Thursday in my morning Bible reading. Psalm 56. It says, you know all of our tossings. You store my tears in a bottle. Are they not all written in a book? It's a picture for us, right? I don't think there's really a huge bottle up in heaven where God's storing our tears, but it's a picture for us, a metaphor that God wants us to know that he's keeping track of it all and none of it will be wasted. It will all be repaid at the resurrection. All of it. For some, the idea of God seeing only stirs up dread. Because that means he sees all the things we shouldn't do, and he's angry. And of course, God does see all things, and God sees sin, the sin I commit, and he doesn't like it. He, doesn't, he hates that sin. But for the Christian, this idea of God seeing us and knowing us so intimately is meant to be a great encouragement. The psalmist says, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears are open to their cry. I'm sure there's some here that might think, yeah, nobody else can possibly understand what I've gone through or what I'm going through. I'm just here to say Christ does. Jesus does. You're right, maybe no one else on planet Earth knows except for Christ. He knows. Jesus knows all that you have gone through. Amy Carmichael, she was a missionary to India. She, was, she left Ireland as a young woman, went to India. I think she spent 55 years there, never took a furlough. How about that? And um, amazing woman of God. The last 20 years of her life, because of a freak accident and fall, what, what might be thought of as some kind of freakish coincidence, but she had a bad accident. For the last 20 years of her life, she was basically bedridden. And she struggled with discouragement and darkness and 
of course, the physical pain. But she found great comfort from four words that Jesus spoke to the church of Smyrna in Revelation 2. And she wrote a poem. These four words where Jesus says to the church of Smyrna, I know your affliction. She found such encouragement from that. I know your affliction. And she wrote this poem, part of which says, the words I know contain unfathomable comfort for our pain. How they can hold such depths, I do not know. I only know that it is so. And Jesus wants you to know that he knows all that you've suffered, all that you have gone through. He knows your condition right now. You and I are so united to Christ and he to our humanity that in our pain, big and small, he is pained. In our pain, he is pained. I was thinking about Paul would know this well. Because remember when Paul was converted back in Acts 9? And, uh, and he was on his way to Damascus. He was breathing out threats, murderous threats against Christians and having them thrown in jail and having some put to death. And, and he was on his way to Damascus with papers to bring back Christians. Right? He was on his way to continue this work. When Jesus, knocked, when Jesus knocked him to the ground, blinded him with this radiant light, And Jesus spoke these words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I say he wasn't persecuting Jesus, he's persecuting people, right? He's persecuting the church. But Jesus saw the persecution of his people as persecution against him. And in our pain, he is pained. Commenting on these verses, Charles Spurgeon said, if we come into such a peculiar position that no earthly friend knows our experience, none having been tempted as we are, yet the Lord Jesus can enter into our special trial and sympathize in our peculiar grief. Jesus stands side by side with us for he has been afflicted in all our afflictions. So could Jesus sympathize with Paul? Of course. For Jesus himself was mistreated. He was slandered. Jesus himself eventually was killed, or I should say condemned to be killed, in a sham trial built on lies. And Jesus can sympathize with us. He knows what we've gone through. But this isn't isn't it. This kind of landed on me, oh, sometime over the week, sometime, I suppose it was late Friday. The Lord not only knows what you have gone through, but he knows your entire future too. He knows all the dangers to which you and I are exposed to on a daily basis and know nothing about. And aren't you glad that you know nothing about them? (laughs) We might never leave our homes. In fact, there are probably some people that do that. They're so afraid. This night, when the Lord Jesus stood by Paul, Paul knew nothing of this conspiracy of these 40-plus men. Right? Paul knew nothing about it. The next day, they conspired. We're not going to eat or drink until Paul is dead. Paul knew nothing about it. Jesus knew. And he wanted to give Paul courage regarding what was in front of him. 
because the Lord knows our future, because he knows all of the dangers that we sit exposed to on a daily basis. I heard sometime, uh, someone recently say, we are insane. The fact that we drive down the interstate at 70 miles an hour in these two-ton vehicles, <laughs> these two-ton metal boxes, right? I mean, crazy. 500 years ago, no one would have dreamed of doing that. It would have seemed unsafe. How many times has the Lord spared us without us even knowing? Countless times. Countless times. So take courage, Christian. The Lord sees you. Number three, take courage, Christian. The Lord is not done with you yet. Amen? The Lord says to Paul, you've testified in Jerusalem. You must go to Rome as well. I'm not done with you. You're not done. I've got more work for you to do. The sideline was no place for Paul while he was still breathing. The Lord had things for him to do, and it's the same for you and I. It's the same for us. As long as we are alive, the Lord has work for us to do. Close at home and beyond, wherever he leads. You and I are not here just to take up space. Our life is no accident. We are on planet Earth to magnify the Lord Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2 says that by the blood of Jesus, we are saved by grace and we are saved for good works. Right? We're saved by grace. We're not saved by works, but we are saved for works. Right? For you are the workmanship of God created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are created to abound in good works. We are created to abound, to just be zealous to do good in the name of Christ. And this includes all that we do, but the primary work to which every Christian is called is to be a witness to Christ, both in word and deed, to speak about Jesus and to show what Jesus is like by how we live. We're to do this as parents in our homes, as married couples with our spouses, and those who live in neighborhoods, which would be all of us, in our neighborhoods and beyond. This is the non-negotiable task for all of us, and that's the word that was given to Paul. Paul was told, take courage. For as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. We know what it is to testify, don't we? Right? A witness testifies in a courtroom about what they have seen and heard. And that's exactly what Paul was to continue to do. He was to testify of the things that, that the Lord had shown him and the things that the Lord had spoken to him. He was to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're to do. Have you had your eyes open to Jesus? Have you, by God's supernatural work, had your eyes open to see him as a glorious savior? Then you and I are called to testify to his glory and his grace. Have you heard the voice of the good shepherd saying, follow me? Then you are to witness to Jesus 
all the rest of your life. Your life is not about pursuing your own dreams and aspirations. And I fear that many Christians, probably in America, have more of an American dream view of the Christian life, which is nothing less than their dreams and aspirations, and they're asking Jesus to help them get it done. And that is not the Christian life. That is not the Christian life. We are alive for him. Right? Remember what Gene said last week? We, the, the Christian life is, is about dying that we may find real life in him. Jesus is no genie in a bottle that lives to fulfill our dreams. Jesus is alive and alive in his people and lives through his people to accomplish his purposes for his glory. So we are alive for his good pleasure. We are alive to point to the one who has saved us. And here's how Peter put it. Peter said it this way. He said, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, meaning he purchased us. A people for God's own possession that you might proclaim the excellencies of him. That's the purpose. We belong to him that we might proclaim his glory, his excellencies, proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. So take courage, Christian. As long as you are breathing, he's got work for you to do. And could you imagine someone like Amy Carmichael? Bedridden. She, she, was, she had like labor-intensive work working with kids. She couldn't do it anymore. And she probably thought, what good am I now? Well, in the last 20 years, she became a very prolific writer of poems and books that have blessed countless Christians around the world. God has worked for us. Number four, take courage, Christian. Your future is completely in the hands of Jesus. Jesus said to Paul, you must testify in Rome. Now, when Jesus says must, it means something different than when we say must. When we say must, it's either a threat, like to one of our kids, you must do what I say or you're going to get something taken away. Or, or it's a, I really hope this happens, this must happen. When Jesus says must, it's a guarantee. It's a guarantee. He said to Paul, you must go to Rome. Now, there was this plot to kill Paul the next day, but Jesus said, you're going to Rome. What do we see at the end of the book of Acts? Paul is in Rome, proclaiming Christ freely to as many as would come to him. How did this happen? It didn't happen by chance. It wasn't luck. It wasn't that Paul was crafty and smooth and somehow kept himself safe. No. These 40-plus men that, that banded together and conspired to kill Paul, one thing, they didn't, one thing they didn't take into account was the word of Jesus, that Paul was going to Rome, was the sovereignty of Christ, that Paul was going to Rome. Their plan to kill Paul had no chance of succeeding. Zero percent chance. Not point zero 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 one percent chance. Like maybe, maybe. They had no chance of succeeding. 
And you might say, yeah, but Paul had an ultra-important task. How does this apply to me? I can't imagine that Christ holds my life like this. You better think again. He does. He does. This is the glorious truth every ransomed child of God can absolutely bank on. It's a consistent testimony of Scripture that God has the final say on our living and our dying. Paul preached to the Areopagus. He said, in him we live and move and have our being. God is sovereign. He is the sovereign of the universe. And who can stand in his way and prevent him from doing what he wants? The answer is nobody. Job understood this. He knew this. At the end of Job chapter 42, after his whole ordeal, which was hard to say the least, and yet God opened his eyes to see his glory. And after all of this, Job said to God, I know that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. None. You can do all things. David understood that the length of our life is determined by God and not by your and my precise way of keeping our diet strict and keeping ourselves... I mean, we should take care of ourselves, no doubt. This is not an encouragement to be irresponsible at all. But David understood... Psalm 139, he says, In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. This means before there was a thing called day, before time began, God wrote our biography, meaning when we'd be born and when we would die. This is greatly encouraging, brothers and sisters. I think. Even pagan Nebuchadnezzar understood that his life was in God's hands when he said, God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can say to him, or excuse, none can stay his hand, and none can say to him, What have you done? And Jesus said to his disciples to, to give them courage. He said, Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your father. And then I just imagine Jesus looking into his disciples' eyes and saying, and you're worth much more than many sparrows. Isn't that amazing? I mean, not a single sparrow. I mean, just kind of a worthless bird falls to the ground apart from God. And you're more valuable than many of them. Surely the Lord wants to give you courage in light of this. I mean, Paul heard the words of Jesus saying, you must go to Rome. And I just have a feeling that Paul felt like nothing can happen to me, at least until I get to Rome. Then who knows, right? That's all the Lord's told me. This understanding of God's Power and authority and sovereignty has fueled Christian missions, well, since Paul. So Christian missions. 19th century missionary Henry Martin epically stated, I love this statement. I I, I used to have this on my phone as my screensaver. I probably should do it again. He said this, I am immortal until God's work for me is done. The Lord reigns. 
Isn't that awesome? Like, wow. Oh, he was a missionary over in India. Died as a young man, but was faithful to the end. Paul was immortal until his work was done, and so are you. I just got to ask you, do you believe this? Do you really believe it? Do you honestly believe this? Not passively agree that in some way God is in control of things, but do you believe? Well, do you believe the words we sing? And when we sing it, I mean, I love this song, and I hear you guys singing it too. The words in Christ alone when we sing about Christ and his authority, right? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand until he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. When we believe this, and I need to believe this better, I believe it wholeheartedly, at least intellectually. So I should, maybe I shouldn't say wholeheartedly. Wholemindedly, I need to wholeheartedly. When we believe this with all of our heart, here's what happens. We will stop trying with all of our might to preserve ourselves and live for our own private concerns and we will fling our lives away for the glory of Jesus Christ, like Paul did. It doesn't mean we'll do what Paul did, of course. He had a unique ministry. But this causes true Christians to say, yes, let's go in his name and for his glory. And then, of course, Paul, when it was time to be with the Lord, when, when, when it was time for his days of immortality on earth to end, he could say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. So what does all this lead to? Right? All this courage-producing realities to trust Christ and live for him. At the end, it leads to a crown when we stand before our king. A crown of righteousness. Eternal reward. Eternal reward. Will you be able to say that? Will you be able to say, I finished my course, faithful to the end? Do you want to be able to say that, don't you? I know you do. It's going to take courage. There will be a crown. Peter calls it the unfading crown of glory. There is an eternal reward that will never rust or grow old. It is unfading. And that's what awaits those who take courage and continue following and serving the Lord Jesus Christ all the way to the end. So take courage. I'm going to take Henry Martin's words. You are immortal until the Lord's work for you is done. So the Lord Jesus is here today, and here's what he says. Christian, the call to be a Christian is a call to follow me on a road that is narrow and hard. You will encounter discouragement, trials, affliction, sufferings, difficulties, but take courage, be strong, keep going, because I'm with you, and I'm for you, and I'm not done with you, and nothing will stop my purposes in your life until your work is done. And then I'll say, well done, good and faithful servant, and bring it to myself. That sounds like a pretty good deal, doesn't it? It's amazing. Let me ask you, is that enough? Is it enough for Jesus to tell us these things and just say, I'm in, I'm in? Stand with me, would you?
Tell the Lord, just as I close in prayer, tell the Lord, this is enough, Lord. This is enough. This is good, Lord. You saved me for a holy calling, and I am in. This is enough.